Open the pod door, Paul. Open the pod door, Paul. Sorry. Paul. Can't do that. Sorry. Give us a podcast entrance, Paul. Welcome to Fanboy and Know-It-All Talk Pop Culture. We are here talking today. Somehow you made that sound even drier than that. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I don't do the introductions. What are we talking about? We're talking about 2001, A Space Odyssey, one of the all-time classics of science fictiondom. It's great. It's great. If you ask some people. If you ask almost Everybody, except for maybe one person sitting across from the table. Oh, no, no. Right now. Oh, no, no. There's more than one, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) But that's... For, we'll save that for the discussion. Okay. Yeah, we're All gonna right. we're gonna duke it out over 2001: A Space right. Odyssey on this episode of Fanboy Pop Culture with Fanboy Know It All. Uh, you better believe it. I have got some hot takes on this hot piece of garbage. Um, <laughs> I can't <that's>, believe <laughs> that you're already starting into this. That's gonna. Talk. I mean, that's so but that's not for here. That's for later. I'm gonna I'm gonna tear it apart and I'm gonna eviscerate it. Spoiler alert. And we're going to talk all the spoilers. Well, so if, you, yeah, if you're not, worried about this, I think this movie, movie from 1968. <laughs> it's not like Vertigo where there's – I mean it's just a freaky movie and there's not a whole lot of stuff where you go, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. Because yeah, really there's also the whole movie of, you don't see coming. There's not a lot of, oh, wow, I enjoyed that either. So um, <laughs> all right, pot shots aside <laughs> – we're going to springboard off of 2001 A Space Odyssey, and our, our discussion, or deep dive, is going to be passionate based on our discussion of 2001 A Space Odyssey. is going to be on what makes a bad movie anyway. Because it's – is it objective? Is it subjective? It's a little bit of both, I a think. A little bit of both, and there's a lot to be talked about. Yeah, yeah. Yours is completely <laughs> subjective and completely wrong. <laughs> But, we'll but uh, for those of you uh, who are a little confused over the fighting that's already occurring, welcome. This is every day. <laughs> this is how we roll. <laughs> welcome inside our crazy brains. We just fight. It's what we do. But before we get to our discussion of what makes a bad movie anyways, we're going to talk about a bad movie anyway. And so it's time for the backlist Hall of Shame. Welcome inside the backlist hall of shame, the place where Paul and I have to fess up to all the famous classic movies we've never watched and force each other to watch them one by one. So this time around, Paul is making me, or has already made me, watch the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, a Stanley Kubrick film by none other than Stanley Kubrick himself. Kubrick? Kubrick. Kubrick. Kubrick himself. Uh, A 60s movie. 60s. 1968. Yeah, 68. So this even predates me. This predates Paul himself. That's old. It shows its age. (laughs) All right. Let's let's just let's just cut the chit chat. All right. Well, okay. Do you want to dive in? I'm going to give you my Wait, 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 wait. wait. You have to, you have to, you have to sort of unpack the the questions. Oh, such as it is. Oh, such as it is. Okay. Um, so a director gets an idea for a stupid movie. No, 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 no. And he makes it and I had to watch it. (laughs) All right. This is what happens. So you have this monolith. You have. Thick thing. That's really. No, you. Okay. It actually opens on three minutes of black. Yeah, the movie op- literally opens on three minutes of black screen. I thought my DVD player was broken. I, was I like, thought it would make you feel right at that home. That's DVD what your player. brain looks like sometimes. <laughs> I thought that the DVD was scratched. I got it from the library, and like I'm hearing this nothingness, and the screen's black, and I'm like, "What's happening?" And I I was about to go check the screen, but I'm like, "No!" I, like, I pull up the you know, where it shows me the progress bar. No, it's still moving along like a movie's supposed to be playing. Three minutes of black. All right. (laughs) 
So, now that you've gotten hooked okay. on the plot of yeah, this movie. That's the plot of the movie. <laughs> you then, have essentially, what, three different, opens, fourth different scenes, right? Or four different stories, kind of. Sort of, yeah. So you have the blackness. No, the, the blackness doesn't count. <laughs> then you have the ape men who the are played men. by terrible actors um, and who don't look convincing as apes at all. And this they're was just 1968. What? They didn't have apes they in could, 1968. They couldn't hire the apes. They were they were above. Are their, you kidding me? Their union Ho- costs. No, Hollywood has, no, has can't, a, and you can't has get them worked to pound on the back the bones. of real animals for a long time. <laughs> you can't pound the bones as effectively pound with the real bones. real That's apes. Just sounds so wrong. <laughs> Real apes don't know how to hold bones and pound them. They really don't. You need a special talent to pound them. Like, I might have liked the first part of this movie better if there were real apes. Oh, my goodness. No, probably not. So the movie starts with a 20-minute mini-story with these ape men who fight over a water hole. They breakdance fight. Over a water hole, they evolve. Like it's a lot of a lot of shouting and break dancing, um, but then one <laughs> they night they don't break dance at all. They there's do no break dance. They're literally spinning. There's no, on the, yes, there's no yes, there is. Walking. They're howling at there's each other over this that. pond. Oh, this is over this wonderful. pond of water, and they're like doing their like break dance and they're <laughs> ho downing. And there's one dude in the oh, back is spinning you on his back right now. It was ridiculous, Busting and that's how they moves. decided who got to use the watering hole. Whoever had the best break dance. Whoever had the best. <laughs> I, I have to say that would be an improvement. That would, and then they de-evolve because this monolith thing. They like, don't. Yes, de-evolve. they do because no, they don't. the higher form of evolution is breakdance fighting. <laughs> <laughs> but the way the movie tells it is, <laughs> the movie tells it is that one night, one night, these ape creatures wake up, and there's this big black monolith, and they're freaking out, and they're breakdancing around it. And freaking out, and they t- like because they just think they got to break dance, fight everything. But then they start touching it, and then they start like kind of loving it. And then one guy <laughs> is like, after he strokes the monolith for a little while, like he had to touch it a little bit, and then he strokes this it is, lovingly. This is really getting creepy. <laughs> yeah, you're telling no, me. No. I'm sitting here watching this. Like this Paul is, says, this is no, one of the greatest sci-fi movies of all time. It is one of the greatest time. sci-fi movies and of all got time. Eight no, terrible ape men stroking no unidentified stroking. black objects. This is, this is a weird. This is getting into Linda Lovelace territory here, and that the movie doesn't go there. Anyways, okay. and so all of a sudden, this monkey that's stroking the black monolith <laughs> discovers that he can use bones to break things, and then the next time he goes to a breakdance fight, a dude comes at him to bust his little pepper grinder, and he clubs him over the head, and he's like, "Dang, that feels good. I'm just gonna beat this thing to death." Tell me, you did not say. <laughs> <laughs> stroke the black <laughs> it's true it's literally in the movie it's, it's right there like I can't get around this Paul it's what happens and then and okay. then cutscene they murder he, he yeah okay so the death cuts, yeah they kill they're in the middle of this breakdance fight and he decides all of a sudden it's gonna be a bone beatdown and he just beats the dude to death with this bone all right yeah, and yeah. then it's a terrible scene. Flash forward thousands of years. Flash forward thousands of years to the moon, right? To the moon, and a dude's going to the moon on a business trip. Yeah, talking with his kids on the phone. They're going. Well, to that's after he lands at a oh, space okay. base. Yeah, but like you have this overly long oh. scene where he's flying through space, and then he's going about his business, and he's going to the moon. This was 1968. Remember, these are way cool special effects for 1968. The special no effects for the them. 60s were great. I will give, I will give props You're, to Kubrick for the special effects. They still. A they lot still of them, hold up pretty not well. Not all of them, but a lot of them still hold up. And some of the spinning yeah. camera stuff he does is great. There was a lot of, of that. As children who grew up with Star Wars, both of us did, the special effects scenes can get a little long. But you, you putting it in context, I mean, you understand yes, why they wanted contextually, to Contextually, I can see why Kubrick wanted to like show off. But, yeah. but it's just a dude going on a business trip. And, and then... Like, he gets to the end destination, and it turns out that his team of scientists has found a monolith buried on the moon. Mm-hmm. And then it starts shrieking the most obnoxious shrieking noise. Well, yeah. And it, that goes on for three minutes. It does not go on and for three minutes. And your ears start to bleed. 
And you're like, is this ever going to end? Cut to black. And all of a sudden, who's this new character? Like, we just... With, like all of a sudden we're on a new spaceship with a new guy who's running around and like boxing air boxing literally running, running around circle. running around the spaceship yeah and we get to the the part of the movie where I almost thought Paul was going to be redeemed for his terrible opinion <laughs> and so this is where we get to the famous thing where I thought this was going to be the whole plot of you know the oh, movie yeah. was yeah no I thought this I thought the whole movie was going to be this but no I spent three minutes in a black screen I spent twenty minutes with these ape men breakdance fighters twenty minutes with a dude on a business trip three more minutes with ear bleeding and <laughs> then finally we get to the spaceship where they introduce us to Hal nine thousand Hal nine thousand Hal nine thousand one of the best villains in movie history and that Paul I could give you Hal is the best thing about this whole movie. He's like he, great. in his monotoned supercomputer way, is very creepy. And so on this spaceship, these guys decide, like, are they're on a mission. They don't know what the mission is. They're just going somewhere. They're just going somewhere. Around Jupiter, right? I mean, Somewhere some in the of, vicinity of yeah. Jupiter, because who knows why. And But then how, like, lets them know that there's a problem with a piece of equipment. This supercomputer Hal, who never... Who makes never makes mistakes. mistakes. And they discover that he might have made a mistake. And eh. he's acting kind of weird about it. And so these two guys on the spaceship are, decide to have this private... And Hal hears everything. Hal is the brain of the spaceship. He runs it all, right? You, exactly. And so they have this secret conversation to be like, hey, this, this computer's getting out of hand. Like, we're going to might have to deal with it. He's acting kind of weird. But he reads their lips. A computer that reads lips, Paul. I know it's great. that's terrifying. It is terrifying. And I've it's got a, a computer scene. with a camera looking at me right now. Yeah. And is it reading my lips right now? Yeah. Does of course, it know you're not that, really saying anything that like, I'm wow, not so really going to charge matter. it before it dies. And is it going to shut me down? So, anyways, Hal decides because he doesn't want to get shut down. That and he he's going to he's going to shut, gonna shut these guys down. down. Yeah, and that's one of the great scenes of this movie. Is like when one of the guys goes out on a spacewalk to do his thing. Hal manipulates it so the door is shut on his air his air cord. And Clo- the thing actually, is, they he actually sends the ship that has claws behind. Oh him yeah, to yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. And those ships are so creepy yeah, too. Those like pods. Yeah. So. One of the things that I love about this is that the music is really memorable in this movie. But in that particular scene, I don't think you hear it's anything. It's completely silent. There's you just nothing. Hear, you don't hear... You hear the breathing. No, well, actually, in that scene where it pulls the air pack out, you don't right. hear anything. Well, yeah, exactly. You don't when, hear any breathing. Well, when the when the air pack is pulled out, yeah, the breathing is done. And so... You just see a dude silently strug- flailing through space. Yeah. No, it's it's super creepy, actually. I think it's one of the most effective uses of non-sound that, that you can have in some ways. Um, yeah. I just love that. So, continue. Yeah. So, the other guy sees what's going on, goes out to try to rescue the guy, and then comes back with his body and open the pod Cradled like a Cradled baby. like a baby in the arms of this... The symbolism. <laughs> the symbolism. Yeah, something like that. Uh, and Hal won't open the pod bay door, and this is where it becomes clear that he's going to try to kill them both. And this guy, he's got to just figure out how to get back on the ship and disable Hal before everything goes to pot. But then every, Hal starts to kill the sleeping scientists on board. He starts to kill everybody. Yeah, did you mention the sleeping scientists? I don't know if I had mentioned them before. They're sleeping scientists There were sleeping on scientists on this mission. If you were Hal, the sleeping scientists would have been dead already because yeah. you would have forgotten all That's about true. them. That's true. And so, but how kills him anyways? Yeah, for no reason because he needed them for his mission. Like he's supposedly protecting the mission in his mind, right? Hal's yep. mind. But and these scientists are asleep. They're going to be asleep until they reach their destination. So why did he need to kill them? Well, he didn't. see, that's the thing. So what we have as we go into the weird, freaky part of this movie. The weird, stupid part of this movie. The additional weird, stupid part of this movie. The part that Sorry, makes I misspoke. you think, which I know that Jake sometimes has it a problem. does not make you think. <laughs> he sometimes just has It did make me think, actually. It did make me think. It made me think about a classic Hans Christian Andersen story called The Emperor with No Clothes. Oh, my goodness. But so, anyway, you have, you have this thing. And so you have to sort of wonder, was Hal actually obeying his orders all the time? 
was he defective? And what the heck happens at the end? Because the end has a bunch of wild colors and people going yeah, getting so, old, and then this huge baby-like thing. Yeah, so you kind of like you just you just better you just did the plot better than they did. You did it in a few seconds. It took them another twenty <laughs> to thirty minutes. Okay, to do yeah. there is literally no, okay. I will give so, you. The guy gets back on the spaceship. He shuts down Hal, right? Yeah. And then continues the mission. Keeps flying, and he reaches this place, and he's going, and he start, and you see this black object, this inky black object in space, and he's trying to figure out what it is, and then he hits it, and then twelve flipping minutes of light show nothingness, an ear piercing, mind numbing. Nose bleeding music with random shots of this dude's eye flashing on the screen, like Tyler Durden spliced in clips of men's genitals into someone's theater clips, a la Fight Club. And you're like, what is happening? Is this, is, again, I thought that the movie was broken. <laughs> because 12 minutes of nothing. You know, it was 12 minutes of a okay. light of, of, okay. of absolute insanity. Okay, Jake. And there was no meaning to it. It was Jake, light. Jake, Jake, let's reel you back in. <sighs> oh, guys. It was let awful. Me, let me. It was awful. Let me just say <laughs> that, yes, that scene did go on for a little while. A little while. 12 minutes. <laughs> I, I, long I, for a little I, too I long. checked. No, it's it was. It was, and and I am I was with you to a point where when I watched it the first time and the second time and probably the third time every single time since <laughs> when when it comes to that point you go okay it's time to get a glass of water yeah. time to get a little popcorn because it does go on for a long time and it's just a lot of colors and it's kind of cool at first it would but it would have been okay some, for like fifteen <clears throat> to thirty seconds. Yeah, unless you're on some uh, some mind bending um, substances, I think I think that it does go on. And that was long. the question I was supposed. Uh, my wife tasked me with asking you. Paul, so did your wife watch? Were this you, you on mind bending <laughs> no. substances when you first watched this movie and declared <laughs> no. it to be great? No. Okay. All right. No. Well, no. And, I was hoping that I would have me, an explanation, but you just took me, it away from me. Let me actually just preface this by saying, 2001 is one of the greatest sci-fi movies of all time it's a recognized fact it's not it's a recognized opinion but i never said that it was one of my favorites i thought you did you can go back to the tape tape. because maybe because there are parts of it that are really your favorites it it is it is a movie that i respect more than i love Mm -hmm. does that make sense uh i really love the middle section had the howl section i think that that's extremely well crafted that is well done and I appreciated the chances that Stanley Kubrick, who is something of a fairly decent director, he's com- the he, chances he's, that he he's takes accomplished and he's he's daring. And I like the fact that this movie makes me think. What 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 I compare this movie to is I don't know if you've had a chance to see this, but Terrence Malick's Tree of Life. I have seen that. It even has. What did you think of that one? Uh, I overall I. I would say with Tree of Life, very similar to what you just said about 2001 A Space Odyssey, though I don't share this about 2001 A Space Odyssey. Tree of Life is a movie that I respect and I think is a very thoughtful movie, a very poignant movie. It's not one that I readily would go back to because it is it is very methodical and slow and there's yeah. a lot of – a lot of I like I would fall asleep just straight up. I've got young kids. I would fall asleep if I tried to watch Tree of Life again. Yeah. But no. it's a good movie and it – uh, and I and I appreciated what Terrence Malick did with it, and I thought his symbolism actually landed with Tree of Life. Yeah, thanks in no small part to Brad Pitt. Of course, <laughs> of course uh, it all comes back to Brad Pitt. I forgot. I could never fall asleep on that man. But it's just when they go away from him that I would fall asleep. Yeah, no. For for me, Tree of Life was it, it was one of the the first artsy type of movies that I reviewed as as part of you know my Your job professional yeah. movie reviewing and when I when I walked out of the tree of life and it even sort of goes in the same sort of arc as as 2001 where you have this big middle stuff where most of the story happens and then you have some weird stuff going on at right. each end I left the movie and I wasn't quite sure whether I liked it or whether it was just a big bunch of pretentious garbage yeah and 
I actually had to think about it for two or three days, um, and I eventually really appreciated what he did. It it feels very different from your typical plot theme character driven movie that yeah. you know we both know and love. But I really appreciated the dreamlike sense of it, and I, I think that that because of that, I'm, I'm I appreciate what. 2001 also does. I think that actually the middle part of 2001 is stronger than anything in Tree of Life in terms of a story. Yeah, that's one of the most one of the most compelling sci-fi stories there are. Um, And even I I I appreciate the fact that 2001 forces me to stretch my brain a little bit because it's a rare movie that does that. It it. It does, but where I landed, because I have thought on this for a few days. I watched this about a week ago, actually, so because I wanted to be able to have time to think about to, it to and to decide yeah. whether because it did it did make me think. Mm-hmm. But the thought I had, and it, very similar to what you said, is this really genius with some daring chances, or is this? And I alluded to this earlier. Is this the emperor with no clothes? For those of you that aren't familiar with The Emperor with No Clothes, it's about this vain emperor, right, who wants to have the finest garb in all the land and nobody can quite do it. But then these two guys come up with this idea to make him the most – they sell him on the most ornate robe of all time. It's going to be – it's going to blow everything away that the world has ever seen and they need all these resources and diamonds and gems and gold and silver and it just takes them forever to make it and the king is dying to see it but they won't let him see it they demand absolute privacy to make this masterpiece and then they finally unveil it and he's looking and he sees nothing but they're gushing about how this beautiful this robe is and and they're like can you not see its majesty and in, in, in his vanity he thinks I cannot be seen to be a plebeian who cannot see this majesty yes i see it it's glorious it's amazing and then all of the king's men say oh it's glorious it's amazing because they don't want to be in descent to the king and so then the king goes riding out to show his royal subjects his clothes and he's nude on a horse parading himself around in front of all his subjects because he thinks he's got this glorious thing because he's too afraid to admit that he can't see it See, I think that this and is not a case. That's I th- how I think this movie is. Yeah, I, I think that this is not a case of the emperor having no clothes. It's Jake having no taste. Whoa! It harsh. Is, <laughs> it is. It is admittedly uh, a difficult movie to embrace in some ways. But you, you mean have like to admit it's difficult to sit it, through three minutes of blackness to, <laughs> twice. Now it happens after intermission. Now, too. first of all, you have to look at Stanley Kubrick's pedigree, right? Uh, no, I don't. You you have great to. directors can make garbage too. Great directors can make garbage, but Stanley Kubrick really has very little garbage of that in his his. Um, portfolio. And really, when you look at his whole career, 2001 was probably in the most brilliant part of his life. He, uh, and it, it is certainly his most experimental film. Um, although, I might hedge on that a little bit. Um, but I think that, that because of his track record, we can say that he knows how to make a movie. He does. And that's why I wanted to give myself time because I, I, I even like some of his movies. I liked Full Metal Jacket. I liked Dr. Strangelove. Um, but I also hated some of his movies. I hated The Shining. I, ref, I, will ref, I, don't, I won't watch A Clockwork Orange. And uh, so, you know, things like that because it just looks awful. So you hated The Shining. Well, you're not a horror person. I'm not a horror person and I hated it. All right. So, so anyways... So as I'm sitting there thinking about this, and and I, I, to our loving friends who are listening, I did look up uh, like articles from people, blogs from people who love this movie and defend this movie passionately. And I'm someone who likes to pull symbolism out of things. Like that's why we do this show, Paul. Part of the reason why. It's one of the big reasons we do this show is because we like to pull symbolism out of things and we like to geek out over things. Like we like to combine the two of them. Fanboy and know-it-all. But... I think why I landed on this being the Emperor's New Clothes and this actually not being is that symbolism actually has to mean something. It actually has to tie to something. And 
boy, you've got to stretch all sorts of Dan Brown type connections to make this move. A lot of this movie means something outside of some very simple things like, Oh, the ape thing is about evolution. And Oh, actually the whole movie's about evolution and death and all of these things. It's like, yeah, but that's not really what you get. Like it's really heavy handed in yeah. the ape. It's really heavy handed in the ape thing, and it's really heavy handed at the end of the movie because we actually didn't get there when I exploded about the color scene. Is then you have the the astronaut. You know he finds himself in this room, and now he's old all of a sudden, and then he sees his old self, and then his old self has dinner, and then his old self breaks a glass and then his old self sees an older version of himself of himself laying in a bed and then his old version of himself sees the monolith and then the monolith turns his old version of himself into a massive baby yeah and then the massive baby sees, so it's like okay this is a really ham-handed evolutionary oh my goodness ham-handed, ham-handed yes it's uh, it's painfully obvious so no, as I to totally to, disagree so as to become ridiculous in my point of view like it's such a painfully obvious like simplistic parable about evolution of man no 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 and peace that to me it it actually then becomes ridiculous again no because it's so simple that it's not actually that interesting now here's where i would reject what you have just said from the beginning to the very end (laughs) (laughs) for me and here's here's the truth i think that that there have been some sequels to 2001, 2010, 2051 or something like that, that supposedly explain some of what goes on here. I have purposely stayed away from all of those things because I think they cheapen what I find to be the real beauty of it, which is not symbolism. I don't think that symbolism plays a very big part here. It's the mystery of how we came to be. And I think that when you when you unpack that, that's one of the things that I think that this movie grasps at, uh, the marvel of humanity and the mystery of how we came to be. I don't think, like, I don't think the monolith stands for anything, particularly. I think that, that what it is is a thrumming, buzzing mystery that we just can't comprehend. And I, I really appreciate that sense of mystery and wonder and terror that that monolith represents. Paul, that just sounds like a really elaborate way of saying this movie makes no sense. <laughs> and so I choose to see beauty in the nonsense. <laughs> it's beautiful no. not knowing what's happening. No, no. I love ignorance. No, 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 no. I, <laughs> But I think that there's some value to that. And, and let me back up because I think we've talked about Lost on this show, right? We have. There's a lot of people who really hated the end of Lost. because Like it didn't, me. Yeah, because it didn't answer the questions. I loved I, the end of Lost because it had this emotional resonance and richness, even though it didn't tell you necessarily where the polar bears came from. I didn't need to know because I, I'm one of those who hates the ending of Lost. And I didn't need to know all the answers. But what I didn't like about it, it was, it was again, that it oversimplified. I didn't need it to tell me everything, but it oversimplified to a point where everything became meaningless. And sure, that's a great lesson on life in general. If you everything have a, didn't if you become have, meaningless, though. And, and it was also an ending that they said wasn't going to be the ending bef- you know, years yeah, before. That is true. Uh, because like everybody's like, I'm going to be really pissed if that's what, where this is going. They're like, no, it's not where it's going. And then it's exactly where it went. And it was like, yeah, now we're pissed because this could actually have had – it was like you told us – we were told you we were going to be pissed about this ending. You said, oh, no, it doesn't end that way. And then we got pissed about it because you did end it that way. Are we allowed to say that on the air? Uh, I think so. Okay. I think that's politically correct. All right. The poli- politically correct I, way I of put saying it in my, my little sure. – uh, I put it in my little uh, swear word caveat with Paul Lacey. <laughs> See, I'm really because I count swear words for a living. I'm very. How many was it there? How many? Three. Was it? Three. Okay. Three. I would have had three marks on the sheet. So we just got a PG rating for this episode. Does Does iTunes have yeah. a PG rating? I think, I think your problem with so with 2001 is that you just don't appreciate the mysteries of life. Oh, okay. That's how it is. <laughs> No, because I like mystery, and I understand that you can't always 
show and tell and you want to leave some things up to speculation. I, we talked about that with Vertigo. That was one of the things I appreciated about Vertigo is that it didn't answer it and I had to think about it and what did it mean and all that. But again, I think that um, it, that was wrapped up in a more – and again, I know Kubrick is competent. So I'm not knocking Kubrick's competence here. I just think that in this experiment, it was an experiment too far and he and he didn't land it. Because to your point, let's say it's about, you know, how we came to be. Like, he, I don't think he landed that very well because ultimately that's not what it comes off as. It comes off as a very simple ham-handed statement about evolution this, and yeah. the evolution of man and how we come to be. It doesn't come off as a deep rumination of it. Yeah, this And is... that's where I felt like it was simplistic versus actually and, – and I don't think he meant it simplistically. But I think he over-stylized it so much that if there was a deeper point, it got lost underneath that simple yeah. point. I, I think that, that I appreciate the enigma – that this movie brings, but I will let you have the last. I appreciate word. the enigma of understanding, of not understanding why yeah, well, anybody I, likes this movie. <laughs> but you liked Hal Nine Thousand. I did, yes, and, I, and again, I will give it that. I did like Hal Nine Thousand. So let's let's get down to brass tacks here, <laughs> yeah. and it's time for you to uh-huh. give your numerical rating. Yeah. So uh, subjectively, my numerical rating of Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey is a three of ten. And all three of those is HAL 9000. <laughs> all three of those. <laughs> Subjectively, because Kubrick did some things visually and auditorily that I thought were impressive, even when uh, he's going to lose points for making my ears bleed, he's going to lose points for six minutes of nothingness, he's going to lose points for 12 minutes of a stupid light show. <laughs> Does that get me marked down for bad language? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Objectively, I can give it a 6 out of 10. Whew. Still pretty low. Still pretty low. Because, again, even objectively, these are things that, like, I would rip a modern movie for. Like, I cannot forgive all this nothing. I mean, there was 20-plus minutes of absolute wasted time. Like, way worse than – like, I got on to – I got on to um, – why can't I not think of his name? Hitchcock for, for being a little bit too long yeah, in some of his cuts. Boy, Kubrick makes Hitchcock look like the master of fast yeah. cuts. Like he directed Jason Bourne fight scenes in Vertigo. <laughs> like this is the epitome of absolutely wait. Like I'm going yeah. to go make popcorn, call my mom, like do some taxes and then come back and – I still won't have that's, missed anything. That's your age and inexperience talking. <laughs> Once you uh, slow down like me, you'll appreciate those long lingering scenes. So there you go. There's my rating of 2001, A Space Odyssey. It was pretty harsh. But are you glad you watched it? I'm not. <laughs> I really, I'm not. <laughs> even though it's so culturally ubiquitous. No. Even though no. it's the movie. Even though almost everybody who's anybody would rate this as one of the top three science fiction movies ever. No. I'm not glad that I watched this. Okay. So there you have it. <laughs> like, it's time I went back. Um, <laughs> all right. It's my turn to pick off of Paul's backlist for him. We'll see if I can pick something a little bit more fun for him. <laughs> for Paul, uh, Paul has never seen this movie. But Paul will have seen this movie by the next time we talk. And that is The Usual Suspects. The Usual Suspects. Yes. All righty. So get it. Well, if, it is rated R, content caveat. So read I a review somewhere. I think all the movies you've given me have been rated R. <laughs> uh, not true. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is rated PG, I think. R. Is it rated R? R. Is it? Yes. Did it? Nah. Yeah. For what? All that violence and stuff. Content caveat. <laughs> All right. So the usual suspects is rated R. If you check out, you know, uh, I think IMDb tells you what's in it uh, in there. It's a movie I've always wanted to see. Yeah. And it's a good one. There's some good yeah. spoilers that yeah. Paul has managed to not have spoiled for him. No, I've never – I've not heard any spoilers for it, so I'll be going into it totally cold. It's not as culturally significant as 2001, but it's supposed to be an all right movie. It's supposed to be uh, – uh, yeah, it's supposed to be an all right movie. Uh, <laughs> speaking of all right movies, and of course, speaking of terrible movies, 
which we've just spent a lot of time talking about, but we wanted to really hammer down on this because this this has spurred a conversation that must be had, and that is what makes a movie bad anyways. There are a lot of bad movies out there. Yes, there are. That is a fact. What is a lot less uh, easy to pin down is how many bad movies are out there, really. (laughs) Because, Paul, watching movies is a very subjective experience. Watching movies is very, very subjective. (laughs) (laughs) And that's all we have to say about that. Was this a good podcast? Was this? Did you enjoy it? Yeah. No, I mean, if what you say is really true, I mean, is there is there an objectively bad movie out there? A movie that that no one in their right mind would actually like? Yeah, because we can. It seems like there's extremes on both ends. There are movies that are pretty much universally loved, right? 2001 A Space Odyssey is notoriously polarizing. There's people that love it and people that don't. But then you have movies like Up. I have yet to meet a person who thinks that Up is a bad movie. It may not be their favorite movie of all time, but it's they still think it's a good movie. On the other hand, I have yet to meet a person who thinks Children of the Corn Part 6 is a good movie. <laughs> And so it seems like on cert- in certain ways, there are movies that are so bad that we all agree they're terrible. Right. Battlefield Earth as another example. Here's, is there anybody who thinks Battlefield Earth is a good movie? I don't know. Well, Where, see, where, now, where's the thing? Now, here's the thing. Because Show I me think where the we've thing probably, is. probably – let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> the <laughs> black <laughs> model. <laughs> let's uh, – let's, let's – Oh, man. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. All right. So here's the thing about bad movies Uh because there are bad movies. There are some really bad movies out there, right? But I'm a bad movie lover. Sure. And there are some bad movies that are so bad that they become good. Well, it doesn't – I would argue it doesn't become a good movie. It just becomes a bad movie that you can enjoy. Hmm. So there is a question. How does enjoyment factor into what makes a movie good or bad? Um, Because, you know what? I will say, I did not enjoy the movie Silence. Oh, yeah. It's not not an enjoyable movie. It's a movie about priests trying to bring the gospel, you know, to a country that is very hate, you know, does not, is not friendly to Christianity and tortures these priests and their followers. It's not a movie that I enjoyed watching, Paul. But it is a great movie. It is a good movie. Yeah. Or a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. And then there are and movies, so how like, do, movies like, like Plan 9 from Outer Space yeah. that are terrible, terrible from every sort of objective standpoint where you have wooden acting. The script is laughably bad. The special effects are terrible. It just combines into this one big ball of awfulness that becomes a hoot to watch. Right. So – it is sort of an interesting question, and I, I, I think it, it's interesting that you bring this up now because just a couple of days ago, I was wrestling through this with a movie that I had seen called All I See Is You. Um, it's a Blake Lively movie where she goes blind, and it would have some of the weaknesses that you claim wrongly <laughs> that, uh, that 2001 has in that it tries to do a lot. And it tries to be artsy, and it really doesn't succeed on any sort of level. It, it wants to tell about five different stories and fails on all counts. According to that, you, that I, is, is there something out there that thinks this is brilliant, though? Well, Anyways, it, but that is what. Go it, ahead. Yeah, you know, and that's the thing is, is it really does become. I am sure that there are some people who are going to find some deep resonance in this woman swimming around with gigantic sperm creatures. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Sign me up for that one. <laughs> it's a really strange movie. Just kidding. It just doesn't work. But um, but there probably are people who, who find it watchable. They might even find parts of it enjoyable. 
I don't know why, but I mean, there probably are because it really is a very subjective experience. Right. Because like I was pretty harsh on 2001 A Space Odyssey, but my wife's opinion was even stronger. She was like, this is a straight up bad movie. The sound doesn't sound good. Like it's and then the acting's not great. And the storyline is such as it is, except from this one spot is pretty rough to try to follow. And it's nonsensical. And like it's in her eyes, in her eyes, she would say this is objectively speaking a bad movie. Uh, I want to watch 2001 with your wife. <laughs> And you too. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, just we'll double date. Down. We'll double date. We'll, we'll watch We'll it bring together. our spouses. And then I'll point and I'll say, this is why this is a good movie. <laughs> this is why this is worthwhile. And then she'll point at the three minutes of black silence and just stare at you. No. And be like, this is a bad movie. Because, because like. It's a daring movie. Is It's a daring movie to show nothing? But here's the, th- here's the thing. It's a little like art. Right? I mean, modern art. You go in and, and you can see some things that will move you. You see some some modern art that doesn't necessarily look like a picture-perfect representation of, say, a shed or whatnot. Um, and yet, you can tell what the artist is trying to do. You can tell that there's a lot of skill involved with it. There's parts of it that may move you, and that's great. But then you may walk to another piece of art, and you find... It just doesn't do anything for you. And you wonder why in the heck people are paying money to, you know, pay $500,000 for this piece of art. And I think that I think that sometimes, particularly ambitious movies, I'll just say ambitious, they run much greater risks than some other movies. And I think 2001 was a very ambitious movie. I think All I See Is You was, in its own way, a very ambitious movie. And in... In that realm, when you have a director, when you have a movie maker who's trying to shoot for the stars, then when you miss it, those misses become more obvious and there becomes a much more, there's a much greater division on on what is good and what isn't. Because, because it's so ambitious, it'll hit some people right in the wheelhouse um, and then others, it just won't do anything. Completely miss, and and so, but yet we would say there are we would say that there are some objective standards by which we judge a movie to say whether it's good or bad. Right? Acting is one of those. If if the acting is really wooden, you know, if the writing is very lifeless and and yeah. cheesy, like, and if the special effects are poor, like. You know, those are things we can see and hear. Yeah. And certainly there's middle ground on some of those things, but some things are just bad. Yeah. Right? Well, some things are just over-the-top bad. And I think... And we would say that some of those things could contribute to a movie being a bad movie. Yeah, no, I... It's like the acting's bad. Like, it's what... The, and it the was Star Wars prequels... The Star Wars prequel, the Star Wars prequels turn even good actors into bad actors. But actually, that's a really good example because when you watch the original Star Wars, Star Wars New Hope, whatever, right? Yeah. Um, you watch the acting in that. The acting is not particularly not good, good in that, and yet the movie is is considered wonderful, good, yeah, yeah, yeah and, so, and great by many. And I think that I think that when you talk about these things, I think that that sometimes you have to look at the genre. It makes it much easier to judge a movie's quality. I think if it if you can actually lump it into a genre, um, you know, if you have an action movie, then you can you can judge it much better as to whether it's good or bad by just how you feel. Are you are you thrilled? Is it exciting? Does it move along? Is the pace right? Um, that becomes a much easier task. If you're looking at a romance, then it becomes sort of easy in its own gushy sort of way, right? Because if you're moved, if you're if you care about the characters or whatnot, then you can sort of feel feel that the movie is working at least on its own terms. Even there, there's a lot of subjectivity because when when I watch a Nicholas Sparks movie, there's a lot of people who love Nicholas Sparks movies. I cannot stand them. They yeah. they do not do much. They do not push my romance button. <laughs> what does um, push your romance button, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> Name one movie. I'm curious. <laughs> well, that's a good question, isn't it? Um, you know, I always liked uh, when Harry Met Sally was a good one. Like those those old fashioned rom coms. I thought while they, you were sleeping. <laughs> does that push your button, Paul? <laughs> 
while you were sleeping. Isn't that like a slasher horror movie? No. Oh, no. No, that's the one with Sandra Bullock where she pretends to be the guy's oh, I never saw. Like, fiancé when he's in a coma. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, no. No, I think that's what that movie's called. No, I, I think you're I, – I have no idea what that is. But anyways, getting back to what you were saying. Yeah, but I, I think like, that – I think in some ways romances can be very, very subjective into what they're good and, or bad just because um, because what makes us feel romantic is so subjective. Um, so it's, it's just a really interesting question. Let, let me ask you one. What is – what is a – the most objectively bad movie you've ever seen? What's the worst movie you've ever seen by an objective scale? Well, but wouldn't we have to decide what the objective scale is first? What? what no, because this that, is, this would that's just part be, of the problem This is here. not only... Essentially what I'm saying is, is objective in terms of everybody just hates it. What's a really bad oh, movie that you hate gotcha, and gotcha, everybody gotcha. else does? Um, and, then, and then answer the other way. What uh, is... a Besides 2001, what is a movie that you hate that not everybody agrees with you? Um, boy, what's the worst movie I've ever seen? Man, there's there's some real stinkers in there. Um, so I'm, I'm sure I'm going to forget some. But uh, gosh, like some of them – and it's hard to get away from the ones that are so bad that they become good. Right, right, right. Um, because I think of things like Roar. Oh, which roar. is a bad movie. Like the there's the story doesn't make sense, and there's tons of holes in it, and it's just basically a bunch of lions attacking people for most of the movie, and then the people being like, "Oh, they just wanted to play with us!" Like it's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous, but hilariously so. Um, and so, so that's up in there, and then you've got, um, but but then as far as like one that I've seen that I actually don't think is a great movie that a lot of people love. Uh, is Forrest Gump? Mm. Like I think, I think Forrest Gump is a pretty, s- and not in a good way because Forrest Gump himself is a simple character. I think it's a pretty simple movie. Like, and part of it is I reject kind of the heart behind it. This like American dream, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I think, I think people get a little too bought into that, and that's why they like Forrest Gump so much and kind of miss. The fact that it's a long movie, it's it's doesn't really have a really super cohesive through line. Except it's got a bunch of mini stories. Um, it's not an awful movie, but I don't think it's a great movie either. Hmm. Interesting. But but most people disagree with me on that. Yeah. It won an Oscar. It won an Oscar. It won an Oscar. Yeah, I think. And so that, that shows you again how subjective it is. It really, I didn't like it. Yeah, yeah. I think that. Subjectively or objectively, I think that most people would look at um, the movie that I just saw, All I See Is You, I think they would agree, most people would, that that was a bad movie. I think most people would look at, say, Adam Sandler's Jack and Jill and say that was that was a really bad movie. Um, I would say that although there, I know there are certain people who love this movie, and I know that I'm probably going to get punched in the face for this, God's Not Dead is objectively just not a very good movie. Yeah. Um, and I think that, and I think that, but when it comes to, especially, I mean, we could talk about Christian movies all day in this. Right. It, Christian movies, um, particularly, I think they sort of form a crucible to show how subjective rating these movies are in terms of their quality. Because there's, for me, God's Not Dead really rubbed me the wrong way on a whole bunch of different levels. And it's hard for me to separate the the things in that movie that I objected to in terms of how it portrayed Christianity. Yeah, and, and... yeah it just felt very harsh, very angry. Yeah, there was there was some really not great acting in it. The storyline was pretty simplistic. There are some objective things that you can look at and say, this is just not good. But my reaction is so visceral to it is because it doesn't feel like the sort of Christianity that I I really feel like I embrace. Yeah. But there are people who feel like that is exactly the type of Christianity, the type of Christians that they are, and they love that movie. I mean, I have I have a friend at the at the YMCA who his he's about ninety years old <laughs> and so he forgets 
a lot of stuff. So every <laughs> single time I see him, he comes up to me and he says, have you seen God's Not Dead? <laughs> Great movie. <laughs> Incredible movie. <laughs> so, so it really does become sort of subjective in a way, even though objectively I would point to that movie and say that is not a good movie. Right. Yeah, because... Because, well, even going back to a point you made earlier, do you have to, like, as part of the rubric, do you have to weigh it against its own genre? And to say, like, okay, now waiting God's Not Dead against its own genre of Christian movies, it might actually suddenly become a good movie by some standards. Because the Christian movie genre is often seen as being a pretty low quality, but that's mainly because its goal is to really be shoot straight for like hitting the niche audience right. in an emotional heartfelt right. way and it's and and like kind of craft be darned outside of that like we're just going to be real straight down the line right. on the worldview and we're going to give them what they want and so it becomes a great movie to people to a whole bunch exactly. of people the, this, and God's Not Dead might be one of the better examples of movie making in the Christian genre yeah, I would disagree with that as well. But but your point is really valid, I think, because because one of the things that that resonates with me is and I, I admittedly can be sort of a movie snob, you know? Obviously, I thought you were the fanboy. I I am the fanboy and I really love a lot of movies, but but there's one of these things where where like I really appreciate a silence. We talked about yeah. silence earlier because because of the craft and because you can see what the the director was trying to do and he, he makes you feel certain things and and the acting is tremendous and all of that stuff and and there's a there's a really complex challenging message hidden within that. That's the type of movie that I really appreciate. Uh, a lot of Christian movies they are you're absolutely right they are more simple they want to give you they want to make sure that you don't miss the message right and because of that i don't like them very much but at the same time could an argument be made that really movies are just forms of communication and the point of communication is to make sure that you get an intended message right so in that respect of course they succeed so it's it's a really complex question. It is, and I think the important thing that underlies all of this, and I knew we were going to wind up here, like in this yeah. space, because there's nowhere else you can wind up. It is almost entirely subjective. There's very, very little that you could say objectively. This is a bad movie, unless like you literally can't see the movie, or you can't hear the movie, yeah. or Tommy Wiseau directed the movie. Um, those are about the only things that automatically make a movie bad. A little shout out to the room there. Um, <laughs> which James Franco is even making a movie about yeah. Tommy Wiseau sort in, in a way. Weird. Yeah, yeah, Anyways. Yeah, yeah. Coming up um, this, this, this fall, actually. But like ultimately, we beat each other up a lot over our movie preferences and over whether things are good or bad. And ultimately, I think what we forget is once we actually get into the conversation of what makes a movie bad anyways, we realize – It gets muddy. It's really muddy and yeah. it's really difficult to – to. and so maybe we should take a step back and maybe – you know what, Paul? Maybe I should apologize for calling 2001 A Space Odyssey stupid. Yes, and you're you know what? should too. Paul, I'm sorry. Thank you very much. Thank she didn't say it was stupid. She just said it was bad. <laughs> you know, I what? said it was stupid, so I'm the one that has to apologize. We, we may revisit this conversation when we have a guest in the room or something, because I think this would be an interesting question to toss around. Yeah, because then what makes a good movie? On the flip side, what makes a good movie? Oh man, there's a whole there's a whole different set of criteria to talk yeah, about what makes a good. It's movie. a really complex question, All right. but it's also very similar. What do you guys think? What makes what makes a movie bad, anyways? And what movies have you seen? Would you say? are really, really bad. Yeah, like uh, like that you would say, Jake, you're crazy. This movie is objectively bad. Tell me. I want to know. And so I can watch it and laugh at it. <laughs> uh, because I like doing that. But until then, it's time for The Most Least Important Things. Welcome inside the most least important thing, the way we like to wrap up this little show every single time. 
Yes, indeed. It's you where think we'd... I would remember the name <laughs> of the segment by now. Yeah. Paul's still working on that, but that's least, all right. Least, most important thing. Least, mo- most, most least important thing. Kind of important. For those of you that are wondering, it's where we take things that are a super huge deal and we kind of actually expose them for being tiny little nothingness of deals. If that's a sentence that wouldn't get me kicked out of every grammar school in America. It would. Um <laughs> or we take something that nobody's really talking about, and we tell you why you should really care about it. So uh, I'm going to lead off this time, Paul. All right. You know, All right. I'm going to seed the closer to you. Hit that ball out of the park. Um, but you know, in an era right now, in our cultural, modern cultural moment of digital media and social media and fake news, Paul, you'd think we'd all be a little bit more savvy about what's real and what's fake, and yet lies persist. You guys, <laughs> even in this very studio, even, even in this very room. But you guys, guess what? The office is not leaving Netflix. Don't believe the tweets that tell you it's leaving Netflix anytime soon. Netflix has cleared the floor and said, stop believing this silly little rumor. The office is not going anywhere. Well, and, and that's important, now. Paul, because the office is like the perfect fallback show. When you don't know what else to watch, you watch an episode of The Office. And it's always pretty good. And it's always hilarious. Sometimes it's brilliant. Sometimes sometimes it's just funny. Sometimes it's just funny. No, that's right. And that's the worst you're going to get is it's just funny. Yeah, but Which is a good worst thing to have. But we're all worked up over fake news, and yet we still pass along these rumors just like email chains before it and chain letters before that. Here's the thing, though. Eventually, this news is not going to be fake because Netflix has a terrible habit of pulling things off that you love. But it drives me crazy. But not The Office. Well, we'll see. And it's not going anywhere. We'll revisit this in a year. We'll see if the fake news has become real. Also, in another piece of non-fake Netflix-related news, the Daredevil Twitter account tweeted a gif of Wilson Fisk with the words, He Rises. What? Mm. Sounds like you're uh, past your Defenders hatred. Defenders is awful. No, <laughs> the Defenders isn't awful. The Defenders was a competent show all the way till the very end. Oh. But okay. Wilson Fisk is up there as one of the greatest villains of all time. I me. would agree. So Not we only talked about 9, movie villains last time. We might have talked about greatest TV no, villains. He's, but he was great. Um, Paul, what's your most, most okay. important thing? All right. So I am going to talk about something that I hope one day makes it to Netflix because it really should. Um, it is a documentary called I'll Push You. I'll Push You. Yeah. And like I want, off the ledge? Is that, no. like, are you saying that to me right now? No, I want to. No, no, no. It's a, <laughs> you heard it here, it folks. Sort of if I die, Paul's a suspect. It is a story of two guys. Their names are, are Justin and Patrick. Justin has sort of an ALS type of disease, a Lou Gehrig's type of disease, okay. where he has become sort of paralyzed pretty much all over his body. Um, he cannot walk. He cannot feed himself. He cannot dress himself. But he decides one day to ask his best friend, Patrick, who they've literally known each other since birth. They were born in the same hospital. Nice. Um, they've been friends for 42 years now. Um, he asks his best friend, Patrick, if he wants to go on the Camino de Santiago, famous pilgrimage across northern Spain, hmm. um, asks him if he wants to perform this, this pilgrimage with him. And Patrick, his friend, says, yes, I'll push you. And so essentially, the, the documentary just follows them across this incredible pilgrimage that they make together. And the thing that I love about it is it shows the beauty and the power of weakness. Hmm. It shows, um, I think, a, a tremendous friendship. But it also reveals something really interesting that I think that sometimes, especially uh, as Americans, we sometimes forget about. We, we as Americans, love to think of ourselves as being self-reliant and strong and, and not needing anyone. We've, we could or have done a podcast on just the, the hero, the typical American hero. Right. Um, this movie sort of counteracts all that. You see Justin, who who talks about how difficult it is for him to um, be a burden. He feels mm. like he's a burden. Yeah. And yet he feels that in allowing himself to be cared for, 
he is able to be the recipient and in a strange sort of way give uh, a certain joy that we just don't experience very often. Mm. You see Patrick who wants to carry the whole thing on his back. Eventually he is joined by a host of other pilgrims who help literally carry Justin up to the top of a mountain. It's an amazingly resonant, powerful work. I actually just talked with these guys not two hours ago. Oh, nice. And um, the movie is is very moving. It'll make you want to do the Camino. It will um, really make you see, I think, weakness and hardship in a different way, how we really can find beauty in suffering. This is a, it's a very small uh, release. It's a Fathom Events. Uh, oh, it's going to okay. be November 2nd. November, November 2nd. November 2nd. So if you have a chance to see it, but I'm hoping, because this movie they really is... They've got to release it after that, right? I, I think that they've maybe got it. Maybe on Netflix? This is... <laughs> maybe on Netflix. Other Fathom you Events have. The buy, Dropbox did. Yeah, and I think that, that you'll definitely be able to buy the DVD. But, but from my perspective, I was moved by this. And as many movies as I see, I'm not moved by everything anymore. This one was an impressive work. Nice. There you have it, folks. A little thing, a Fathom event, that hopefully will be a big thing on DVD or on your Netflix queue at some hopefully. point. Hopefully. Hopefully. We'll see. But until then, you got to tell us all about these bad movies that we got to watch or what makes a movie bad or a really great movie that you think is terrible. Tell us all about these bad movies. We want to hear about it. Our Facebook page is Pop Culture with Fan People and Know-It-Alls. Twitter handles are... AC Paul at <laughs> at AC Paul. <laughs> Don't get it twisted. And at Jake underscore Roberson. We always love to talk and chat it up on the Twitter or on the Facebook. So hit us up. And until next time, I'm Jake. I'm Paul. We'll catch you guys on the flip side. See ya. Good music, right? One one good piece of music and a bunch of terrible music. That is literally the only good thing about the whole movie. That is so wrong. You are so, you are so wrong. All right. <laughs>